Welcome to Rights on the Line, the Frontline Defenders podcast featuring the voices and perspectives of human rights defenders around the world. I'm Debbie Stothart from Altian Burma. In this special episode, produced by the Coalition for Human Rights in Development ahead of the Finance in Commons Summit, we speak with defenders in Kenya, Guatemala and India about the human rights impact of projects imposed in the name of development. From November 9 to the 12th, all public development banks in the world will be together for the first time ever. Over 450 finance institutions and heads of government will meet to discuss their response to global challenges such as climate change and the COVID-19 pandemic. Under the flag of sustainable development, these banks often present themselves as the world's saviors, but their investments come at a high price. Activities they finance have been linked to thousands of human rights violations. Human rights defenders who oppose harmful projects are labeled anti-development and they are being threatened, attacked and killed. Indigenous peoples are seeing their territories being pillaged. Rural communities are being forcibly evicted. Despite growing evidence of these abuses, human rights are not even mentioned in the Finance in Common Summit agenda and are glossed over in the proposed joint declaration that all banks will sign at the end of the event. Once again, the voices of human rights defenders and local communities are being completely ignored. To hear more about the real impact of projects approved in the name of sustainable development, we speak with two indigenous human rights defenders from the Sengwa community in Kenya. For security reasons, they will remain anonymous. Can you tell us what happened when the World Bank approved the project to manage water resources in your ancestral lands, the Mbobut forests? The project, when it was started, it started well because uh, they said uh, a consultant who did the uh, indigenous people's planning framework. And uh, the document was out and uh, it really recognized uh, the rights of indigenous peoples with the commitment by government that it will, not, it will no longer uh, displace members of the Senguiri community from their ancestral lands in the forest areas. It was a requirement by the World Bank that the government must uh, prepare that indigenous people's planning framework before uh, they get the funding. Uh, but now, down the line, from uh, 2008, 2009, 2010, there were evictions, forceful evictions of members of the Senguer community living in Ebobut Forest. Senguer houses were burned down, their property were destroyed, even uh, uniform for children, school-going children were burned down, textbooks, excess books, they were all destroyed. During that time, in the 2013 January, we were able to, to make a formal complaint with the World Bank Inspection Panel. We, uh, they sent some experts to come and carry out uh, an assessment whether it is true what we complained about the because of the fictions, 
because uh, there were also lack of consultation because in 2011 the project was was restructured it was restructured without the knowledge of the single indigenous peoples so uh, later on the project came to an end in uh, 2013 june so immediately the project came to an end then the government now started now making uh, plans to do a massive eviction of the members of the Segwer community. In 2014, an investigation by the inspection panel, the World Bank's independent accountability mechanism, found that the bank should have anticipated the risk of violent evictions as these concerns had already been raised by local human rights defenders for years. Yet in 2016, the European Development Fund approved further finance for a similar project in the area and violent evictions continued. Can you share with us what happened? Then the European Union funded a, a project called the Kenya Water Tower Program, which was also focusing again on the water towers, you know, the catchment areas, water catchment areas. So this project was done without consulting with the community and we raised a lot of uh, uh, an alarm we wrote letters uh, begging now the the European Union to send human rights uh, officers from Brussels and Nairobi office that was in 2017 uh, March so the two officers one from Brussels and one from Nairobi office they went to Kapkoklet in Embogut Forest and they met with members of the Sengwer community and they confirmed that it is true members of the Sengwer community are living inside the forest because uh, the government all along they were saying there are no uh, Sengwer people living inside the forest. So immediately the officers left the forest. Kenya Forest Service guards went into the forest and started uh, doing, uh, carrying out the fictions in the area where there was that meeting between the community members and EU human rights officers. Human rights defenders who struggle to protect their community's rights in the context of development projects are often at risk. They are stigmatized, accused of being anti-development and attacked. Can you share with us what type of attacks are you facing? They carried out the fictions and uh, my colleague Elias was uh, attacked on 2nd of April 2017 by Kenya Forest Service guards. He was attacked. He had uh, his uh, hand elbow broken, the kneecap was also broken. He was hit by the, uh, by the butt of a gun by the forest guard officer. So, and uh, since that time, even as we speak now, Elias is still undergoing a constructive surgery in uh, one of the hostels here in Eldred in Kenya. So, then after that, that happened, and then in December, on 9th of December, because we continued complaining, then in 9th of December, human rights, uh, EU, Brussels, sent another officer to come and confirm whether the allegations that we have, we have submitted to EU are actually the truth. The officer came, she went to the community, she collected information, and uh, she went back. But all these reports, we have never had a chance to access the reports that were made in the visit that was made in July and also the visit that was made in December. And then on 2018, January 2018, 
One member of the Sengori community was shot dead by a, a life bullet by the Kenya Forest Service cars. And then again, another one was injured. He was also shot on the leg. And uh, he currently actually has been made now uh, a person living with disability. What happened after these attacks? Did the government or the bank take any action? Yeah, yeah after the killing of our community member, at a day... Uh, that was following that day, uh, that fateful day, uh, European Union was compelled to suspend their funds. So after suspending their funds, I think it, they told the government to investigate the alleged, uh, the alleged killings of uh, our community member. So what police did was that they came and investigated, but they got witnesses who are wrong people, who, people who are not in, in, in that uh, in that area when Robert was being killed. So they got wrong people like uh, Kevescas themselves who are there. The only person that they are, that could have that could have given uh, correct information is David who was injured, who was with the deceased guy. So I think that investigation has been going on, but uh, for lack of seriousness from government side, so it has not gone anywhere. And if it, even if it is brought into uh, a court of law, it can't meet a threshold that it can show that KFS shot this guy because the people who are being taken as witnesses are KFS themselves and also people who are not in the scene of the crime. Can you share with us what you are going through? So evictions has been going on, even during the time of time. And again, our houses again were banned by cuts uh, and also the leaders of the community are just uh, in great threats because that the one who have been agitating about these land right issues, the recognition of land right issues and also for the community to be recognized. So uh, we are kept in that because we don't we don't know what the government is planning at the moment. We are thinking that it might be they are just planning evictions, so these threats are just persistently there because one thing is that our land rights has, has not been recognized despite that we've been in dialogue with government for, for many years. Community members, uh, the single people are living in fear. Even as we speak now, we cannot even build a house. People are still being pushed to live on makeshift uh, houses. People are pushed to continue to live even in caves, in the thick forest, because uh, we cannot uh, build houses even in the open, uh, open grassland, uh, in the forest, because the KFS will come and burn them down. So we are still living in fear. In the Wewe Tenango Department of Guatemala, the peaceful resistance of the microregion of Esquises is struggling against three large-scale hydroelectric projects that threaten the very survival of local indigenous communities. The government gave the green light to these projects without consulting local communities, therefore violating their right to free, prior and informed consent. The concerns about the serious health, social and environmental impacts of the dams were completely disregarded. 
and to quash any form of dissent, the territory was heavily militarized. Human rights defenders in the peaceful resistance are risking their lives to defend the right to self-determination and to protect the natural resources in their territory. In the past decade, they have faced stigmatization campaigns, defamation, human rights violations, threats, criminalization, and killings. In December 2018, the bodies of the brothers Neri Esteban Pedro and Domingo Esteban Pedro were found near the San Andres hydroelectric plant with bullet holes in their heads. In 2017, human rights defender Sebastian Alonso Juan was shot during a peaceful demonstration. In 2018, the Peaceful Resistance was one of five recipients of the Frontline Defenders Award for Human Rights Defenders at Risk in recognition of their courage and the importance of their struggle. We speak with two Indigenous defenders from the Peaceful Resistance to hear more about the challenges and threats they have been facing. The land, nature, the rivers, everything is at risk. We do not know what can happen if a strong earthquake comes, the dam can collapse. And the other problem is the diversion of the river. The company wants to divert the river. There are communities living here and many greenhouses that would run out of water if the company diverts the river. And that is another big problem. We want to protect the nature. We don't want them to destroy the land where we live. They kill many fish, shrimps, snails, and aquatic animals, and they say this is development. But development for whom? Development for them, that's not for us. The projects are being financed by several development banks, including IDB Invest, the Central American Bank for Economic Integration, and Cordiant Cap, a Canadian financial intermediary. How did the banks violate the rights of your community? With regards to the bank, it has violated our rights because it did not investigate first to whom it was going to lend money. The money given by the bank has served only to destroy nature and to get people killed in our territory. For example, our camera Sebastian was assassinated. We saw that the money they spend is only for killing people, and we are being persecuted by the company. Arrest warrants, denunciation, people were attacked with the machetes, bleach, intoxicated with tear gas bombs, death. This is the type of attack the company and the bank committed here. What's your idea of development, and how does this compare with the idea of development being pushed by the banks? The company has been talking about development since they began to travel across our territory, here in our communities. They spoke of development, of energy. Some of them were confused and probably they believed in what they were saying. But we saw that what they were talking about was a lie from the beginning when they began to manipulate people. They speak of development, but what development do they leave behind? 
They destroy the land, our forest, and now we see that development that has been left behind is only destruction and that we will never return to our nature. I've been living here all my life. I grew up here. Many people used to come here near the river that is called Rio Negro. Now they no longer come because everything has been ruined. Development, says the bank, but it is development for them. What we want is development that is for the people. We wanted a turbine managed by the community, that is managed by the people. That is not transnational, as they say. The hydroelectric power we will be installed here, and they will install a large cable, and if God wants, within 10 years, they will be able to complete the project. But we do not agree. We want development for the peasants, not for the big rich ones here in Guatemala. Public development banks are one of the most powerful actors in the global economy, with over $11 trillion of assets in total. The amount they invest annually is equivalent to the combined economies of 110 countries. Their choices on which projects to fund and which standards to apply or which standards to disregard affect the lives of millions of people. We are speaking with Vidya Dinka, Indian human rights defender, social justice activist and coordinator of Growth Watch about the shortcomings and failures of the current development model and how this affects human rights defenders and communities around the world. Vidya, how are development projects affecting local communities in Asia? From our region, from South Asia, you know, there are like examples every which way you turn of multilateral development banks putting in money, saying all the right things. And yet when we see up close from the ground up, the situation is completely at variance with what we are being told, what the project reports say, of what is being promised, um, what even the monitoring reports say. So, uh, for example, very recently, um, early last year, we were looking at an Asian Development Bank funded project in Kolkata. So it's a city well known across the world. It's a very old city. And so um, when uh, when somebody comes up with money to uh, to uh, sort of augment their um, water supply and their underground drainage, nobody can fault that. Every city wants uh, a good water and sanitation system. The ADB will even now, on record, okay, they'll say, we haven't really displaced anyone for this project. And in 15 days, everything is done and the road, uh, the roadside is back to normal in 15 days. This is what they said. And yet we see that for more than a year, for a year and a half, there there have been people who have been displaced, who were wending their wares, wending their services by the roadside. Everybody was asked to take down their uh, makeshift stops and were told that in a month or two you'll come back and do not oppose this. It's a, it's a great thing. We've allowed you to wend your stuff here, you know, and
And so, of course, because they do not have any, um, any papers for putting up the shop there, they are scared. Uh, they took down their shops. They went away. They spent quite a bit to keep their stuff away. Most of the stuff has rotted and spoiled. Um, those people are, have been without an income for so long. Okay. And yet, the ADB will tell you, no, it is just the access to the shop. And, yeah, and then they said, okay, but we had put in compensation for two weeks because that's all the time we're going to do the project. Uh, but they hadn't paid anyone that compensation. They hadn't even told people that they are liable to get compensation, that that is their right. So all this grand thing about, oh, we have a grievance redressal mechanism on the ground that's functioning. Sorry, we didn't see any evidence of that. And we're, we're absolutely transparent and accountable. We share all the information of the project with the people. We've had numerous consultations. Well, this whole concept of free prior informed consent is just a concept. It looks great on the books, but it doesn't translate to what we see on the ground. And this is one of the simplest projects that I'm describing and the kind of devastation it has had in the small community, uh, a community that after a year and a half has not been able to rebuild their shops, rebuild their lives, rebuild their livelihoods. Where are they supposed to go? How are they supposed to survive? At the Finance in Common Summit, banks representatives from all around the world will be speaking about sustainable development. But in this context, do you really think that development can ever be sustainable? So these uh, development banks are not really development banks. In the name of development, they're spreading more destruction than our communities. And I think it's really funny that, you know, they come together in a summit and there's no pretense. In a way, it's, it's good that they drop the pretense, you know, because they do this all in our name, uh, especially, you know, the global south. And... Um, it isn't that we are important to them. Pushing out their loans uh, and their own loan recovery. So I'm wondering whether, you know, the, the whole COVID-19 and the post-COVID recovery, um, um, you know, dialogue for them is more about their own recovery and not the recovery of communities and people on the ground. So I don't think we should be very surprised that um, these kinds of matters that are important to us, the environmental, the social, the human rights aspects, uh, these matters are important to us. I wonder how important they are to the bank. And therefore, I think the signal is loud and clear. It's their big summit, 450 of them, or all the big bees coming together. And um, well, we don't need to kid ourselves anymore. They don't care. Uh, they don't need to have us there. They don't need to discuss issues that are important to us. It's only issues that are important to them. Uh, they will continue their um, ways of spreading inequality and debt across the world. That's, that's the reality that we need to grapple with. We need to get real. Looking at the whole scenario, what I think is sustainable and what I think is development hardly even matters because the powers that be 
are hugely influenced by these big multilateral development banks who think they are in a way the repositories of knowledge that they want to share with everyone and our governments their clients are unfortunately lapping up that so called knowledge and understanding of what is sustainable development and thrusting it down our throats so really what communities and people on the ground know and experience as sustainable development is being just shoved aside it is being steamrolled and you know like a juggernaut of so called development is being you know rolled over our communities and so there's nothing that is in the pipeline in terms of projects or policies or even a, a kind of world view which is truly sustainable and uh, and so our understanding of development itself is now so stunted because of what they are doing so to even articulate uh, a, a kind of new form uh and, and and it could be age old or it could be new ways of looking at development itself is so challenging right now that even our own people do not understand us anymore because development is about being big and bold and and these big ticket projects with lot of money and big infrastructure projects is the um, understanding of development and uh, the things that man matter hardly get any uh, space even within the minds of people so how are we going to have these conversations again what changes has covid-19 brought to the development sector and where do you see some spaces for hope when when covid-19 came a lot of um, our brethren thought this is a great opportunity this is when we can think anew we can build anew and all that talk but unfortunately these uh, these um, uh, you know these people with all the money bags are not thinking afresh uh, they are thinking in the same way and therefore much of what we are experiencing on the ground is more of the usual more of business as usual and uh, and uh, and and there needs to be a breaking down to build up again afresh which i don't see happening so um any talk of sustainability and what i think of sustainability is just wishful fanciful thinking how do i even implement or how do we as a community think of implementing something that is sustainable it's only if we step firmly away from these bodies that are interfering in our uh, daily lives and um, if we sort of uh, clear up that space completely i'm an eternal optimist though sometimes you know um things around us can be um, somewhat Uh, of a challenge that you don't know how we will surmount at the same time i think those of us who think differently from um uh, from the run of the mill kind of thought process that our governments and um, mdbs are pushing at us mm, i think it's a time for us to uh, sort of hold space 
Um, I think the solidarity uh, during this um, COVID-19, um, I mean, itself has been exceptional. Okay. Uh, we have built solidarities with communities across the world using social media, etc. And uh, also, uh, there's a feeling of shared um, loss and uh, shared challenges. And that brings one together very tightly. If we can hold space, uh, then I think it augurs well for the future. The Finance in Common Summit takes place this week and we must make our voices heard. Join our Twitter storm and use the hashtag Human Rights in Common. It's time for the banks to respect human rights, listen to human rights defenders and let communities decide on their own future. It's not finance in common without human rights in common. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the Rights Online podcast for future episodes.